This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. The Speed Series episodes are straight to the point, no BS answers to listener-submitted questions. If you have a question and want it answered, submit your question using the link in the description. Thanks for listening, and good luck this season. Welcome back to another episode of Latitude Speed Series Q&A. Today on the show, I have Jacob Sklenner for a repeat appearance. Jacob, thanks for hopping on, man. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jake. It's always a, always a pleasure to be on here. Yeah, of course. Uh, the last podcast we did, that data acquisition podcast, has still been one of the best performing ones I've ever done. So very grateful that you came on and gave everybody an hour of just straight deer wisdom. It was It was phenomenal. I'm just glad people weren't bored to death listening to it. I mean, oh. it's a it's a lot of hardcore stuff, but I guess that speaks levels to the audience that you guys have here and how critical they think about deer hunting. Yeah, I, th- I think there's so many people that are on this level now where everybody's just elevating their game. They're all gaining knowledge. They're all out there working hard. And, you know, everybody's looking for that one little light bulb. And for me personally, I think that podcast had like probably a dozen light bulbs. Like my brain was just (laughs) absolute mush by the time that was over. I went back and listened to it too. So yeah, I can't thank you enough, man. Uh, So today we're doing a speed series Q&A. It's going to be a quicker podcast, obviously. And it's a really good question. So the question is, what are the components that you find most frequently characterize the best overlooked spots? Everyone hikes in deep these days. So it seems that the smartest hunters are able to identify these spots and subsequently find kill the mature deer that inhabit them. So I'll let you uh, start off with that one if you want. Yeah. So the characteristics that I see most often with overlooked spots is that first off, it's it's unknown. It's one that doesn't get touched. And um, that's kind of obvious. I mean, it's the definition of overlooked, but there are a lot of times that you have to look into why those are particularly getting overlooked. And I can think of some spots that Dan has taken me to and he's hunted himself. I can think of some spots that I've had and very common. It's because there is a main parking lot or there's several main parking lots and there's a trail going from that parking lot straight into the heart of the woods or straight into the features that you look for, like maybe right into the first major hub system that's in there, or maybe it's too, you know, deep into a swamp or something like that. 
it's almost always like it's a human funnel. Honestly, it's usually just an elevated, easy walking trail the same way a road is. You know, it's guiding people to go further back. And a lot of people that do go further back end up using those for the first mile of their trip before they start to branch off. So the first aspect that I look for is those trails that naturally guide you to go further back. And I start to look at when I check out a map, what am I immediately attracted to? Like, I know you, Jake, you're going to be looking for like hub scrapes. You're going to be looking for areas with hubs that have major complex ridge systems. Um, You're going to be looking at how the thermals work within that system. If you're going to have a very high thermal draw, stuff like that. And those are kind of the things that I mark right away when I'm in the hills, at least as well. And once I get those initial thoughts down, I start to kind of take a, a more, a bigger step back. And I take a look at what did I miss? Like what's something that you know, might be downwind of access or overlooking access, or what's something that I'm probably going to walk right past if I'm going to those most attractive features. Now, this all changes when you put boots on the ground, you're going to start to see other correlations. But if we're just purely talking about mapping, it's almost always right near the access or when you're incentivized to go in further is what I normally find. I like that answer a lot. And I relate to that a lot. I will say that the thing that I've always struggled with, with overlooked spots, is I'm very similar to probably the average hunter's mindset as far as finding locations to hunt. And I think the thing that I probably do different is two different things. Either I ask why when I have a certain circumstance arise, and it could be like like the other day, for instance, glassing a big mature buck in a field I never expected one to be. I ask myself why, and then I locate an overlooked spot because of that. It's not because like I'm 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 going to admit right away I overlooked that spot for 3 years until a week ago and a week ago I decided you know what this is a spot I need to go in and look at and it's dynamite and I've just overlooked it myself because there's a big chunk of land on one side there's barely any land on the other side of the road I typically go to the big chunk of land the other thing that I will say is the only other way that I've really located overlooked spots is through the uh, through the bulldog mentality, if you will. I think that's the best way to put it. But really, it's me just going out and like leaving no stone unturned. And then eventually I dumb luck into an overlooked spot. And when I find it, I, t- I typically recognize like, man, I wasn't expecting sign here. I can't believe this is here. But I recognize that. And I'm like, you know what? This is overlooked because I overlooked it. But the only reason I found it is really through just like a hard-headed, dumb luck approach a lot of times. I I have found more overlooked spots through personally overlooking them for years, and then eventually they just pop up in my head or I just stumble through that area for whatever reason. Um, I found overlooked spots, overlooked spots tracking a deer before where I got into an area just tracking a deer. That's a and great like, way to do it, actually. That's a, that's a fantastic way to do it. Yeah, it just, just tracking deer, just trying to find tracks, whether it be the snow or whatever it is, and just go out and, hey, you know, what do I get myself into? And you're like, wow, this is, I would have never came here. Um, but I will say that after finding these overlooked spots throughout the years and having, to be honest with you, uh, quite a bit of success in them, I, I agree with a lot of what you said. And a lot of that does come back to most of the areas I'm hunting are littered with hiker trails. They just are. There's trails all over the place. And it does seem like those trails are kind of people, they're human funnels, if you will, like you said. And it does typically seem like when I find one of these spots, it is like off the beaten path, but it's almost immediately off the beaten path. It's never, it doesn't seem to be way back very often. It seems like once you get way back, like if somebody makes it that far, they're willing to explore, but they have that, I want to go back further than everybody else mentality a lot of times. 
where a lot of the spots that I find, like uh, what tipped me off to killing that 172 is I was walking down a hiker trail and the hiker trail goes from a parking lot straight for a mile. It goes dead straight. And there's a little corner chunk of this public, but it's almost impossible to get to. There's so much greenbrier in this area that you have to just, you're getting tore up to get through there. And then you get through there and then you got to cross a big creek and then you got to cross a pond and you got to go through. I mean, it's just terrible to try and traverse that, but you get back in there and the sign is everywhere. And I just, same thing. I would have personally overlooked that, but I went in there with a specific mentality. I found them even looking for rut spots. Like I'll find a really good rut funnel and go in and scout it and realize like on the way to the rut funnel that man, there's a overlooked spot right here that's loaded with sign. It's got white oaks. I never anticipated this. I didn't see them on a map. I'm not too proud to admit that most of the overlooked spots that I found and had success in really do come down to A, overlooking them and B, dumb lucking into them. But I think the biggest thing there is keeping an open mind to where when it happens, you don't just write it off yourself. You don't say, oh, it's too close to the road. Oh, it's too close to this hiker trail. Oh, there's no way that these deer are bedded you know, 100 yards behind this guy's house. There's all these different factors. I think that if you keep an open mind, like the way that I try to approach my hunting style now is I don't think that there is anything that a mature deer won't do. And with that mentality, I'm always open to the discussion with myself of, is there a deer in there for some reason that I don't understand? There, there could be. I'm going to go look. I'm going to at least do myself the due diligence to go in there and investigate the situation. And I think that mentality probably will lead to more of those spots. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason that we're, you know, majorly unsuccessful when we go hunting, despite all of our best efforts is because deer don't do things that we expect. Like the bucks we chase don't do things that get them killed. So when we go off of the mentality that we typically use to kill them, they're probably not going to, you know, at least a very special deer is probably not going to be be there and doing exactly what we thought on our first attempt. You know, I really like the nature of this question because it's asking about what characteristics you know, do you see with these overlooked spots? And you know me from my my whole breakdown of the last episode. It's like, I love looking at past success. I like looking at failure and I like analyzing why. And so like you were explaining why is just such an important question when you're talking about mature bucks. And you need to, when you identify these very, these very overlooked spots, these things you need to look at and identify the reason it is overlooked, why that people weren't going there. And then you can kind of take all those things and apply them to other situations. You can start to apply them to areas you haven't been before. Of course, it's extremely important to get your boots on the ground. Like you, sh you should always confirm your suspicions or deny your suspicions and track if you were right or wrong. But getting practice with identifying why something was successful or unsuccessful and then applying it to different areas is is crucial. Um, there are a lot of other little things that, that we even talked about before the episode that have to do with overlooked spots, like small parcels near big ones. That's huge. Like when someone has the option to go to 10,000 acres, they go to 5,000 acres or even here, it's like 2,000 acres is huge. But if you have the option to do that. That 40 or that 20 or that 90 is getting overlooked on the side all the time. And especially when it's an area that like might be county land that's to, that's open. Like sometimes you have states that have county land or MFL or FCL or all these other different designations of land that don't display the exact same on Onyx, let's say, or, or you know, your government website that displays your public lands. Those, when you get a combination of that kind of parcel that typically gets overlooked and it's small and it's next to a really big, well-known, you know, kind of big buck property, a lot of the times that little piece is getting 
overlooked. Yeah. And one thing that I have to add is a lot of times when we find these overlooked spots, it's because all of a sudden we stumble across like great sign. We're like, holy crap, there's something in here. In areas that I've scouted in Southwest Wisconsin, the hills, that's almost always true. When I stumbled across one of those spots, I found big sign and that's what tipped me off. This is why I kind of locked on to when you said tracking a deer is when I'm here now in, in Southeastern Wisconsin and I'm transitioned to marshes and stuff like that, even though that there's a lot of big bucks in my area, um, there's not always sign. And sometimes you just figure out that overlooked spot because you see a track or like you were explaining too, is you see the deer itself. I know for a fact, like the, I want to say the majority, but I'm not certain of it, but most of the really special bucks that Dan has killed in early season has been because he spotted them. You know, he put in the time driving and he saw them and he's like, what the heck is that deer doing there? Um, or he saw him work in the scrape or something like that. And then he just found these golden scenarios and they produced for years for him. Another thing that I've found recently is monotonous terrain. Like everyone wants to go to your complex ridge systems or everyone wants to go to that little Oak Island way out in the marsh. When you're in a giant patch of monotonous terrain, it might not be something that you can pick out from the sky in these high pressured areas, because if you could, it's probably got a tree stand set up in it. You know, a lot of the time we like to go to these things and, and figure out why. And, and sometimes it just doesn't seem to make much sense. And I think that's why it gets so strongly overlooked. Sometimes it's that monotonous terrain that for whatever reason never gets touched. You cut some huge tracks in there and you realize, holy crap, these tracks are going in the same direction every time I've cut them. Like they're, they're going back to this and you're kind of creating this hub based on these tracks you're seeing. Those spots have played out huge for me. But a lot of the time, it's just something that you identify like in monotonous terrain or, or in, you know, from a sighting or whatever. And then you can start to apply it or it's something you may have overlooked. You're like, oh crap, you know, if, if I look at like this LIDAR imaging versus my Onyx view, or if I look at my leaf off imaging versus my Onyx view, there was something there. I just had no idea. Um, and those little things are things that you can use to trace back your steps and say, all right, how did this area slip away from so many people? And now I discovered it. How can I apply it to other scenarios? Because it doesn't do you a lot to have one spot. That's like the whole give a man a fish. If you're able to now derive these spots and you gain some more value and you can find them over and over again, that's kind of your teach a man to fish scenario. It 100% is. Um, the, the one thing I will say there is I have had, I personally have had quite a bit of trouble finding, like replicating some of these overlooked spots. And I think that the, it's just very situational. Like I definitely think you can, and I have before, but I also think that there's some, there's so many factors that produce an overlooked spot. And so one example would be that you have a bunch of private housing and then the public like makes an L and makes an L back into the corner against that private and mm -hmm. say there's an ag field back there, or a good white oak flat or anything else. Well, that L will create that overlooked spot because people are going to walk past it and they could turn right and follow the property line and get back in that little like corner. But a lot of times they just stay away from that. But if that housing isn't there and somebody has access through the private or people feel more comfortable because there's not a house, you know, couple hundred yards away. It might not be overlooked or you, there's a lot of people that find these overlooked spots. So a lot of times I get in a spot and I'm like, this is overlooked. And then there's a tree stand. I'm like, oh, this guy's killing deer. Like this right. guy, no, you know, we're not the only people that are out there thinking in the woods. And so that is the other side of this thing. But, but yeah, I would, I would agree with everything you said. I mean, that all rings true. Um, let's go through some more characteristics. So uh, do you have any on the top of your mind? One thing that has been huge in this marsh terrain, in this open terrain and, and your non-wooded areas is areas without trees. 
like I, I heard Hunter Hogan actually talk about this quite a bit and I'm seeing it like extremely vividly every day I'm going out in the summer now. But it's like every time you get those lone trees or whatever, you know, you, you've got people cutting them up or I mean, it's not legal here. They do it anyways, but whatever you get tree stands in it. And anytime you get in a hardwood section, it's it's all over the place. There are certain properties that like they'll be divided by a creek or road or whatever. And that other side just doesn't have much trees. It doesn't have much to set up in. And people don't even really look at them. I feel like sometimes like I just remember going on a scouting trip in the spring and being like, what is going on here? Like I, I was across the I was I was across these train tracks on the other side and it was just terrible. There was people everywhere. I was seeing fresh boot prints from people tracking and, and scouting and, and shed hunting and stuff. And I go to these other this other side and it was like deer were on private land. Like it was like they were, you know, not to say private land's easy, but like they were just doing whatever they would naturally do. Every time I expected a rub to be somewhere, every time I expected a bed to be somewhere, it was. And I think that's huge. Just areas that maybe don't set up very well for for the hunter. You know, there's a whole debate between do lures get sold to fishermen by the colors or do they get sold to fishermen by the functionality? A lot of times lure is buying the fishermen versus the other way around. Well, I think it's kind of like that with the land. Like sometimes it doesn't look optimal and it just gets written off entirely. And sometimes that's like your best scenario. I think one of my first sits this year is actually going to be a ground sit on just a little risen area in a marsh. And like I got water 360 degrees around me, but it's a little land bridge that's going to lead from a point that gets hunted a lot to an ag field that gets hunted a lot. And they leave that point instead of following down that land towards where all the other hunters are. They take this little risen area through a bunch of red brush and willows and, and stuff. And you could not, I mean, there's not a single thing that you could set a stand in. And I'm just going to be sitting on a little bit of an elevated dry patch and probably within 10 yards of whatever buck is coming off that point. But areas without trees was that's huge. something that really kind of opened my eyes. That is huge. That's my Kansas approach right there. Like when yep. I go to Kansas, I mean, every single wooded creek bottom that I found that creates any sort of funnel had multiple tree stands in it immediately. And so for me, it was, that was, I actually went back to my map and immediately I was like, okay, find areas that don't have trees or that look like they're like scrub apples or, or trees that just aren't going to be, you know, perfect for a tree stand or a climber or ladder stand or anything else. And that's how I had success day two was that exact thing. So I focus on that a lot now. Uh, I've seen the same thing in New York with a lot of these marshes too, where same thing, isolated trees are like the points of a lot of these transitions that set up, you know, you have the point jutting out and it's hardwoods into the transition of the marsh. There's tree stands on that stuff. So I agree with you a lot. If you can get away from trees, I think that that is a huge thing. And you just have to be willing to accept the fact that you're going to be hunting under different circumstances like ground hunting. If you can just accept that, I think that there's a ton of opportunity out there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. So I would say that uh, some characteristics I have would be the like the big one is that L when the public comes back and wraps around the private a little bit and it creates just a little corner that's hard to reach. Uh, obviously the, I see a lot of really big buck bedding. I know this has been said a lot. This is more of a regurgitated thing, but I see a lot of deer bedded to where they can view a parking lot and they can view a hiker trail. And I've targeted some deer like that and had some success doing that. The overlook spot with that 172 sets up like that, where these deer are bedded up on top of a, it's basically a bluff. It's not even really a ridge and they're bedded up on top of it it's like a 40 foot elevation change maybe maybe even 30 it's not very much at all but it's really thick green briar they have good wind to back and they just 
stare at that parking lot and that hiker trail all day. So how I killed that deer was circling in on the backside. That was yeah. the that was the play there. If I go in like everybody else, he's got me 10 times out of 10. There's no way I kill that deer. So right. I spent a lot of time doing that. Other overlooked spots would be the same thing you already talked about. And that's it's when you have a chunk of, of land that's huntable to the public. And I've fallen for this a lot where you'll have, oh, I can go north and go to 10,000 acres or I can go south and go to 30 acres. And I find myself going north the majority of the time. The other day when I found that good one, I, I finally went south. I finally just recognized what I was doing. And yeah. with really the visual observation helped a ton with that because then I can ask why. I'm like, well, why is he there? Well, there's a little chunk of public here that I can go see if he's in and bam, he's in there. And so that was that was kind of like, I got handed a gift almost, if you will. <laughs> I got another one is uh, landlocked pieces. Pieces where you have to to water access to a tiny small parcel way out in the middle of nowhere. We actually had areas that um oh let's see how many rivers I can name real quick so people don't get onto the spot. Um the Rock River, Wisconsin River, Mississippi River, seen in on all of those rivers, the Brule River, less, but you know, kind of near those, that there will be land for duck hunting. And and it will just be like this marsh, and there's beautiful bluff country, beautiful hills, your giant oak flats, things that every hunter wants to hit, right? It's right on the edge of it. But but sometimes when I do that water access to come scout or to, to go for a hunt on that bottom side of the hardwoods I always intended on hunting, I'll take a little cruise over to the other side of the river on that tiny chunk that's met for duck hunters. And if there's any bit of woods in that area, usually every tree is rubbed. Like it's it it can get insane. And I was actually tipped off to this because we had guys um, on the land that I hunted that would do deer drives in like long tailed duck boats. And it was massively illegal, but they would literally rip them through these backwaters and they would jump deer everywhere. And they've had people in stands just shooting like crazy. I, I got a text from a guy I knew from the channel and uh, there were people who were doing these drives. I had my brother sitting in the bottom. I was sitting up top. You know, you just hear it's like Vietnam down there, you know, opening day. He ends up shooting like a 150 something like honestly, the top one percent or two percent of bucks that were on this property. He ended up shooting one right after those drives kicked off. And it was like literally deer got pushed from one side of the river, funneled through a bunch of uh, a bunch of like connecting islands and swam across this large river. And he shot one as it was coming up onto the bank on the other side. And it was just this little sanctuary that if, you know, if it really hit the fan, like that's where the deer were going. And he was telling me, and that's how I learned about it. And then I started looking out for it and deer were like in there like crazy. And it, it wasn't that, there, you know, it was just, you know, open maple flat kind of um, backwood backwater section. But like, it wasn't like there was anything that would really sustain them for a long time. But when the pressure really got going, that was an area that they knew they were going to survive. And, you know, there was just no one using that chunk of land. And I also want to point out when you're talking about this L-shaped stuff is like deer don't see property borders, you know, like a lot of the time, if you really analyze now that's going back to mapping and, and a lot again, this this takes boots on the ground to find these spots. But if you look at a land with the borders off and you just determine where the bedding is, there's a lot of times it does fall on those borders or it does fall on that little piece that's inconvenient to get to or if you get like a like a horseshoe kind of shape where one end of the horseshoe, uh, one bottom of it doesn't connect back to a road or access. And you have to make a big U to get in there. And, you know, your wind has to be perfect. Otherwise, it's blowing into where you're hunting at. Those can be overlooked like crazy. And, and it's just a matter of is there 
terrain that gives them some kind of advantage? Is there bedding that keeps them alive? Is there appropriate visual or sound or smell on access? So I think we as humans get really fixated on borders, especially us that hunt public land and deer sure as hell don't. Yeah, no, I, I think borders, I think that's a really good idea. And I've never really done that, but I can see myself going back through some of my spots and turning off the borders because as soon as you turn that on, it is definitely something that's in your head. You're like, okay, I'm focused on the fact that this is public, this is private. So if I eliminate that and I just look at that ground, is it telling me a different story? Is it going to make me want to go do something else in there? And the answer is probably yes, more than no, to be honest with you. So I mm -hmm. think that that's pretty good. I think the border thing's huge, man. And that's roads are the same way. Like if you have a two acre chunk of public on one side of a road, like that deer could be in there. And the other thing is I don't see deer have any problem crossing roads in daylight. Like in the last, you know, half hour and that golden half hour before dark, mm -hmm. they get up and cross roads to food sources. Fine. I see it all the time. One of the, one of the spots I have is a buck's bedded 30 yards off a road. And I actually park way down on a hiker trail and Jay hook my way in. And I'm, you know, he's coming, he's crossing the road and coming over on an oak flat before I shoot that deer. He's not bedded on the same side of the road that I'm on. I'm anticipating that I can't get over there. He's bedded 30 yards off the road, but I've anticipated that and had very good success in that area. So it's mm -hmm. just, you always have to just be thinking outside of the box more than anything else. Yeah, it's like how many times does a buck get shot while it's on a road? Like probably not extremely often. Obviously, there's there's human scent, there's cars, whatnot. I'm not saying a buck's gonna go betting in the middle of a road, but like you know, being 30 yards off a road ain't always such a bad scenario when you don't when you're not right off one of those lots. Like where when you're not in a parking lot, you know, like in an area where people are cutting off of that road or, you know, around here, there's lots of pheasant hunters that'll just jump in off the road. But um, if you're not in that situation, you know, you got a couple cars and headlights to dodge maybe, but it's probably not very often they get shot right next to that road. No, you know, exactly. And that brings up a whole nother point too. That's uh, out of state. I've had a lot of good scouting success, not killing success yet, but I feel confident in these areas where if you have like a major highway, like a, you know, an actual highway that you can't pull off to go access mm -hmm. that ground from that direction. I've had a lot of success finding big deer and big beds, big tracks up against that highway. Yeah. And Illinois is a really good example of that. They have some highways oh, yeah. that cut through a lot of that public. And you can, if you can figure out a way to get in there and access that, you can have a lot of success finding deer. I feel really confident about, about some of our camera sets in there. To be honest with you, it's not even like it's, I mean, it's overlooked because there's a highway on one side of it, but like some of them are just little subridge points that like the highways on the spine of the ridge. And then you have sub ridges that come off that. And so that buck is bedded with a highway at his back and it could be 20 yards away and he's bedded in that sub ridge. And a lot of people just never think they're on those sub ridges up top overlooking mm -hmm. anything. It's the perfect spot. They will, mm -hmm. they, how often are they going to have anything come from that direction behind them? Probably not very often at all, to be honest with you. And they just, I've know a lot of guys that have a lot of success with that. Same thing with rut funnels. That's another overlooked spot where highways are pinching with like river systems. You have a main highway, you have a river system that's creating these oxbows and these channels when it turns. And then where that 40 yard strip of timber is, that's a killer rut funnel in a lot of circumstances. And people probably oh, just yeah. don't even look at it. So, so yeah, I agree with all that. I think the water access thing's huge. You, you just reminded me of fence rows. Like w neither of us are huge open farm country kind of guys for the most part, but, but man, those little ditches, those either high spots, low spots, or just random thick cover fence rows, like, gosh, how many times you hear of like a buck just hiding in a fence row. Josh Talker um, has a fantastic story about like 
I want to say the buck was like 160, but he was walking up and down this fence row, getting into a spot, and he was trying to figure out where the heck this buck was. He knew it was on this property, and he was walking back and um, past an area that a buck was actually bedded on this tiny strip of fence row and giant open ag land. And then he realized he forgot his release, and he started heading back. And I think like 30 yards later, that like he passed it again, and then he came back in with his release, and that buck was like, "That's enough," and jumped up as he was heading back into the spot. And it just took. It would have taken him stepping two feet off the trail or it would have taken him passing it that third time to get that buck to be uncomfortable and jump out. But again, you know, that's not something you're always drawing up on a map, too. And it, it does take those boots on the ground to kind of figure that out sometimes. And, um, you know, he kind of ruined it a little, a little bit, little found it a little too late on that one. But it's a really interesting concept. It definitely is. I think the big takeaway with this podcast is just to stay open minded that boots and there's no substitute for boots on the ground. I mean, you can definitely 100%. attempt to replicate them and have success doing that. But if you have an open mind and you're willing to put the boots on the ground, I think that you can locate these spots. And and then it's a matter of identifying that it's actually a good spot or not, whether that be sign or a track or even a single bed or a visual observation. You see a deer cross the road, whatever it may be. But yeah, I think that uh, I think that was a pretty good answer to the question, man. If you don't have anything else, I think we'll wrap this up. Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, that's about all I got. <laughs> awesome. Well, hey, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. We'll have you on again soon. Absolutely, man. Anytime. Yep. Where can people find out more about you for anybody that didn't listen to the last one? Um, I have uh, my YouTube channel, The Wild Calling. Um, it's Wild Calling Outdoors on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, that stuff, I'll just keep you up to date on what's going on in my season and I'll be posting before I get videos out. But if you want to see all the different shorts and videos I got, I think I got about like 80 something on there right now on my YouTube channel. So uh, that's The Wild Calling on YouTube. So you can check me out there. Awesome. Sounds good, man. Thanks again for hopping on. Yep. Anytime, man. All right, everybody. That is a wrap for today's show. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed today's show, please head over to iTunes, leave a five-star rating and a written review. We'll see you next time.